Dr. Zwade Marshall, MD, MBA, is a co-founder, managing partner of Dr. Doc Lending, and is principally involved with investor relations and business development. He's a Harvard-trained double board certified anesthesiologist and interventional pain management specialist, and he also serves as the chief medical officer of regenerative spine and pain in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Marshall got his MD-MBA from Emory, and while there was awarded Emory's Humanitarian of the Year Prize for his work with Pipeline, a longitudinal inner-city high school mentoring program. Dr. Marshall is the managing partner of Arrowhead Healthcare Consultancy, LLC, and serves on the board of the Emory Alumni Association and the Medical Executive Committee of Alliance Spine and Pain. He is a clinical preceptor for medical students in his pain practice and is actively involved in philanthropy in Atlanta and Guyana. We talk about how Dr. Talk Lending got started, some of the hiccups, how lending small amounts of money for low interest rates is somehow a money-making business, why someone might borrow from Dr. Doc, and how his MBA has helped him with the business and his perspective on problem-solving in healthcare. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Today's podcast is sponsored by Thermal Custom Packaging. TCP has many different products to help with medical transportation, including their totes and phase change materials, or PCMs. TCP developed a portable blood bank using these phase change materials to maintain the precise temperatures required to store and transport blood. This portable unit allows blood to remain with the patient in the critical hours following surgery, which is especially important with younger, smaller patients. Using TCP's insulated totes and their custom PCMs, they're able to transport blood specimens, biological pharmaceuticals, tissues, organs, vaccines, including the COVID vaccine, as well as allografts, refrigerated, frozen, and ultra-cold as needed. These products are even being used to ensure the safe travels of the COVID vaccines to rural areas. They also have other products such as MedShield and IceBuddy available for retail use, which you can learn more about on their website, which is thermalcustompackaging.com. Visit them with the link in the description for more information and follow them on Instagram at thermalcpackaging. Dr. Wade Marshall, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Right. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So first, we're going to talk about the MBA. And the reason is because I think a lot of people, especially with burnout, they're looking for other options, other things that we can do with our degree. And they're thinking, maybe I'll just do an MBA. However, you know, an MD or a DO is a professional degree. You can't, it's a trade. You cannot practice medicine without it. But there's really nothing that you can do with an MBA that you can't do without. So for the audience who's considering it, tell them what the advantages have been. Sure. So I'll tell you that for me, the MBA was probably the richest educational experience in my sojourn through academia because it changed the lens through which I saw the world. At the time that I decided to do it, I was in medical school between my third and fourth years. And it was right when the Affordable Care Act was being conceived. 
And there was so much happening in the healthcare landscape that was changing so rapidly that I quickly realized that if you weren't at the table, you're not getting the menu. And there was so much that we did not understand as physicians, as clinician physicians, about how this healthcare organism, this complex healthcare system works and the different levers that are at play to ensure that effective care can be meted out to the population. And so for me, it was a lot of looking at healthcare through a business lens, and that's not just to do with care delivery, but also with entrepreneurship, with leadership. It was understanding the character traits that I had innately and honing and and polishing them to my strengths as a leader within whatever organization I was a part of. I think the MBA gives credibility in a lot of different settings and folks will perceive that you have a better sense and understanding of finance and accounting and leadership. And I don't think business school is a place you go to learn those hard skills. It's a place you go to become conversant in it and to be able to lead a team of accountants to getting you the right information. It's less about the hard skills and more about the soft ones. It's high emotional intelligence. It's interacting and networking appropriately, but also being able to understand your decision-making algorithm internally and knowing when to spot an opportunity and when to pounce on it. So for me, it was this rich environment of the Socratic method, uh, a lot of folks in the classroom with me had very disparate backgrounds that, that, that enriched my educational experience. And, uh, and I was the doctor in the room, which gave me a, a level of clout because the non-medical world still respects what we do and, and, and kind of the rigor of, of a medical career. And so it was really just a lot of fun. So I'm sure some of what you learned there ended up being the foundation for Dr. Doc, right? Without that education, without that network, I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened, but certainly that education and network greased the wheels for making Doc to Doc happen, right? It probably would not have happened without it, to be honest. I left business school and returned to finish my medical training with this fire inside of me, knowing that I wanted to do more. I love clinical medicine. I still love it. I'm a practicing anesthesiologist. I, I see interventional pain patients. I do spine injections every day, but I've got this other itch that I need to scratch. And uh, the MBA helped me realize that. And for Doc to Doc, the, the kind of origin story, the reason why the company was, was started is based upon the shared lived experience that I had and my co-founder, Dr. Kenton Allen as well. In my case, I was moving from a low-cost living city, Atlanta, to go to Boston for a residency. I was at Emory for medical school and I matched at Harvard. I went over the match day kind of euphoria of matching at my top choice when I realized I needed to get first last month's rent and broker fee, and I didn't have the liquid cash to do so. I had a student loan debt burden that was north of $200,000. Sorry, just to clarify for people who have never lived in New York or Boston, you needed a broker fee to pay someone to get you into a rental. That's absolutely correct. And the folks that have never had to experience that, hats off to you guys. You know, it's the most painful thing ever to pay an entire month's rent to the person that finds you the place to live in. A rental, a rental, unreal, (laughs) unreal. Right. But add that to your list of expenses, right? As if there wasn't enough that you'd have to pay for in this transition from medical school to residency. So, right. This is these expenses that you, that aren't necessarily accounted for in how they're calculating our financial aid, right? This is where Dr. Dr. Doc came from. 
That is absolutely correct. These are the the unforeseen expenses, the shortfall, the gap within your financial aid funding to get you from point A to point B. But then you look to borrow the money on the traditional credit markets, and it's really hard because in my case, I had north of $200,000 in student loan debt, which was a little bit less than average at the time. My income as a first-year resident was $54,000 a year. And my FICO score was sub 700, I was sub, subprime borrower, not because I was irresponsible. I just had very little credit history. And so the bank saw me as a high risk borrower with a high risk of default. So either denied me the loan or they offered me a credit card interest rate. Now, if those bankers know what we know as doctors, that I'd match into one of the most lucrative specialties in one of the best programs in the country, and you can draw a straight line between my start date and my end date and my ability to repay that loan 10 times over, they would realize that my default risk is not what they would predict based upon that snapshot in time, my financial profile. Well, they do know. They just don't care. And the reason that that I know that they know is because of physician mortgages, right? Like we can take out mortgages because our rate of default is so low and because we're high earners, even though we haven't been high earners in residency, they know we're going to be. So they're willing to take a risk with us because they know it's not a risk, right? With mortgages, because that's a high ticket item. That's exactly right. So there's money to be made. They know it. They're aware of it. These are not high ticket items that you're talking about, right? You're talking about taking out small lump sums of money that you need to make it through these transition periods. So there's not a lot of money to be made for them unless they're charging you extremely high interest rates. So they know they just don't care because they're not in the interest of they're not in the business of caring. They're in the business of making money. You're absolutely correct. And they have the added protection of having an asset to back that loan, the house, right? In our case, these are personal loans. So they're non-collateralized loans. It's unsecured debt, which means that if there's any default on the borrower's part, we have nothing to reclaim for that funding. And so the banks don't want to take the risk on an unsecured product, knowing though that that borrower can repay that, that loan, what we can. But to your point, there's so much more money to be made at a higher interest rate if they withhold that capital and save it for the super prime borrowers and charge the others subprime rates. Wait, so you and Kenton sat down and you said, you know how we could really make money? Let's loan out people money and charge them a low interest rate. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> what, what, can you explain this to me? Sure, sure. So our value proposition is not based on the net interest margin, meaning the difference between our borrowing cost and the price of our loans. That's not the real value of our company. It's the lifetime value of our borrower. So we created a unique lending algorithm that is proprietary in which we look, we underwrite our loans, not just based on FICO and a credit profile. We look at that physician's career trajectory. We care about their specialty, their place of training, their zip code of practice as a proxy for MedMal insurance and Medicare reimbursement rates. And we put those in addition to free cash flow and, and a credit profile into the algorithm to get our borrowers a very competitive rate. We added additional features like no prepayment penalties, giving discounts for auto pay, and encouraging our borrowers, if they have the liquidity to repay that loan sooner, to do exactly that. So if they overpaid any month's payment, we apply the overage directly to principal to save them in interest expense over the life of the loan. 
well, why do we do all of this? Because the value is to keep that borrower as a part of our community. And they'll come back to us for those higher ticket loans that you mentioned earlier, Brad. Because if you look at a, a physician's career trajectory, there's so many vertical financial instruments that we consume that have higher margins. For instance, you're a third year orthopedic surgery resident and you borrowed $35,000 from us because you needed to, to refinance your credit card debt. We know that in exactly three years, you're gonna have about 227,000 bucks on average in student loan debt that needs to be refinanced. We know that in about four and a half years, you're gonna be looking to buy a home that's worth approximately 787,000 bucks, depending upon your market. If you're in Atlanta, it's 787. If you're in Atlanta, you're buying a Mercedes-Benz S500 class uh, car because that is the vehicle of choice for doctors in Atlanta. But then you also consume- As a personal note, it was my two friends who were orthopedic surgeons who convinced me to get a, a coupe. I got an infinity coupe <laughs> right outside. I was actually, at the time, I was driving a Trans Am convertible, just to give a little picture of who I am. Uh, that's what I was driving in, in residency. But in New York, in the winter, you can't really drive a rear wheel drive vehicle that has really wide tires and it's about an inch off the ground, right? We're not getting anywhere. So I needed a new car. So I got an all wheel drive coupe, which didn't work out so well because I surf. So you can't put a surfboard. It doesn't have a flat enough top for roof rails. So, but my two knucklehead orthopedic surgery friends were the ones who convinced me, Brad, you need a really nice watch. Both of them who don't know each other are into watches. Both of them who don't know each other are into cars, convinced me. So yes, that is, you're spot on with your, the, the person you used is an orthopedic surgeon. We all have those orthosurgeon friends. I still have a couple of them that, that are just exactly like that. But so they'll also consume things like, disability insurance, term life insurance, whole life insurance, annuities, and the plethora of products are innumerable. And the, the traditional marketplace, they spend big bucks trying to acquire a physician customer because our lifetime value is so rich. But they don't take the gamble on us while we're still in training. So they wait for us to blossom from ugly ducklings into beautiful swans, and then they're willing to chase us for, for their products. So what we're doing is, creating an ecosystem of doctors who can trust that we're going to treat them well. We have a concierge experience. The docs, when they apply for a loan from us, application is three minutes. It, it, we, we designed the app with a physician's busy schedule in mind. They're, they're conditionally approved within seconds of the application being submitted. And then they speak to a physician member of our team for a doc-to-doc -doc consultation where we deliver the actual value. And like, here's your rate, which are the terms. We answer any questions that they have and then follow up with an email that in which they can select that, that loan product and have the funds dispersed in about three to five business days. So if they like the experience. Sorry to interrupt. Have you ever had a client that you, you got on the phone or one of you all got on the phone and they were looking to take out money and you said, this is a terrible idea. Do not take out money for this. Like, have you ever given the advice? Don't use our services, please. Absolutely. Bad idea. Wait for this. Absolutely. I think in our community of, of, of physicians, a lot of influencers will talk about us on their platforms and folks will say, hey, I want to get by my car and use a doctor doc personal loan for my car. No, don't do that. Right. Someone mentioned getting it for to buy a Peloton. Well, Peloton 0% interest on, uh, on, 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 on their loan. Like it's their, their reasons 
a lot of folks just don't understand the different types of lending instruments out there and, and what a collateralized loan is compared to an unsecured loan, how a personal loan differs from a commercial loan on a business. And so we're oftentimes coaching folks and saying, this is not the kind of product you want to use for this. We recommend you try this other product instead. And they love us even more for giving them the advice. And they often come back later when they do have a use case that's relevant for us. So the the business model is really trust and loyalty. You're not looking to make money off of these small, low interest rate loans. You're looking for brand loyalty. Absolutely. And now we do make some money. To, to be clear, we're not losing money in each loan. Each Each loan is unit positive, but it's, you're not talking about getting rich off of the loans. It's more about servicing a consumer well and uh, and getting that brand loyalty to your point. Was that the business model from the beginning? Yes and no. At inception, we had a very utopian idea of doing a, a, peer to, a true peer-to-peer lending platform where we had physician investors that would write us checks and then we'll match an investor to a borrower and do it like a lending club model. The challenge is it's highly inefficient to raise capital that way. The time it takes to procure a physician investor, the legal documentation, paperwork, and finding the right type of borrower and categorizing the risk associated with individual borrowers is really tricky. And and we saw that those challenges play out with Lending Club. So we changed to aggregating and pooling that risk and also pooling the investment dollars, which on on a weighted average basis makes everyone more protected. So you're not going to have the single investor who gets burned from a single borrower that had a bad outcome, but we're pooling it all along and we have reserve funds to cover losses when they happen, though we have not had a loss in in, in the history of the company yet. So is this entirely physician money that's going to trainees or is it physician money that's being leveraged against bank money? It's physician money that's being leveraged against bank money. So we've got a couple of ways that physicians invest. The, uh, the, the most pure way is they give us equity checks. So they help to, for the company's growth, the scaling of operations. It covers the infrastructure to build and grow upon for scale. And so they have a stake in the company by writing an equity check. And then we've got investors that write debt checks where they'll put up ten dollars to $100,000 and they get paid a quarterly dividend that just returns capital to them. And then that debt note matures after two to five years and they get their principal back. And so those are the two ways that doctors invest in the company. But then but on the equity check side, we will use that equity capital to collateralize a larger bank loan or, or a VC loan that allows us to, to, to deploy capital faster. So in, in our early days, we were giving, we were lending between seventy-five and two hundred thousand dollars a month back in two thousand and twenty, we're doing about two million dollars a month currently. And to raise the capital from individual doctors to fund that volume of loan uh, is just too it's too challenging to herd cats, so to speak, that way. So so it's an it's a collateralized credit facility based upon physician investment for that equity stop. So when you were forming Doctor Doc. What were some of the other hiccups that you encountered? So the, the biggest challenge in the early days was entering into a business 
that is so highly regulated with so much red tape and bureaucracy. We found out pretty early on that each state had their own lending limits and their own usury laws, and you had to apply for a lending license in each state separately. And it was an arduous and expensive process that my co-founder and I, we underwrote the cost ourselves because we don't want to have investor money uh, tied up in that kind of a cash burn. And so it's a part of, of what we did before we took on investors. So that was one of the biggest hurdles. How long had you been practicing when you did that? We were both two years into practicing, but you know, like it was tough, you know, but we both had pretty good starting careers and knew we were going to do something together. And so we, we had saved a bit and we believed in the company. And, and so we, we wrote our checks ourselves. And that actually helped with fundraising later on, right? Because we built out an infrastructure. So when an investor wrote a check, there's not the same risk profile when, when you're spending their money on the rudimentary parts of the business. So the legal bit was a significant hurdle. I'll tell you what else was tough for us. Understanding and learning how to ask your peers for money to for fundraising, we, neither of us had any level of comfort with pitching folks and doing the Shark Tank style pitch. So that was uncomfortable for at least the first year and a half to two years. It's not uncomfortable anymore? Less so because we've had some success. It's not like a charity. It's like fundraising for a charity now. It's fundraising for a, a, a genuine business. That's right. The, our last round, we were oversubscribed. So I had to tell folks, hey, it, we can't take your money. I'm sorry. I'll tell, I'll tell you next time when we're open. So it's gotten, it's gotten better, but it was just so uncomfortable to, to ask someone because then, you know, if someone had a reasonable question and reasonable criticism, you can't help but feel a little bit like you don't believe in me, you know? And so separating the, you know, the personal angst of feeling of disappointment of rejection to, to just understanding that everyone is not meant to invest in startups. Trust, but verify. Trust, but verify, right? That's what we're taught. Absolutely, absolutely. But I, and so it, it stung a little bit sometimes. So, so that was a unique bit. And then I think that the last thing I'll say about hiccups, understanding how to speak to different audiences and knowing what part of the story resonates most. So in this context, with you, with our peers, folks love when I tell them that I'm a practicing physician. I've borrowed money to start my own practice and surgery center. I know exactly what the use case of funds can be for someone. And that's wheeling and dealing in medicine. Folks love when they hear that the doctors speak to the borrowers and it's a doctor-doc consult. You know who hates that story? Investors that are sophisticated VCs, they say it's not scalable to have doctors speak to a doctor for each call because that's an expensive call center, so to speak. The second thing is, if you're a full-time physician, how can you run the company? And investors tend to like the starving entrepreneur who, if things are going awry, they'll be homeless and without a car. And so it makes them work harder to ensure the company succeeds. And so if you're uh, a, a highly compensated professional in your other career, it creates a lot of doubt in their minds. And so the question then becomes, when are you going to quit your day job to lead doc to doc full time? And so navigating that criticism and creating the answer that makes the most sense to them, but helps them understand the ethos of what we're doing here. A large part of why we've been successful is because our borrower base understand, knows that we are exactly like they are.
that I that that when COVID happened and I was scrounging around and trying to find PPE for my practice, that my peers were doing the same thing and trying to find deals and funding to, to float inventory costs. And so we've got our finger on the pulse of the needs of the physician entrepreneur that's needing access to capital in a way that SoFi or Bankers Healthcare Group cannot because they're not living it daily like we are. The other thing is that we actually love medicine and we, we love our careers in medicine and we find it's very rewarding to be able to do that, speak to it, and also have the, this company support our peers in the way that it does. Absolutely. That's uh, a lot of what we talk about on the podcast is the importance of having an outside interest, something that lights the fire under you because hedonic adaptation, right? Eventually what we do can become monotonous. A lot of the stuff can become similar and routine and having something outside that's changing and dynamic and, and you can continue to be passionate and excited about really helps you stay interested and excited about the medicine that you practice. We need these outside interests. So yeah, it, the, the two are not two opposing ideas. I, I can see how it works well together. Because, right, if, if part of what you're getting here is with the brand loyalty is they want to trust you, they have to buy into the brand. So the fact that you and Kenton are still practicing and have no plans for stopping helps us believe and buy into the brand. That's exactly correct. And the number of relationships that we've built through the Doc2Doc network where folks will meet for coffee after we do the consult or we'll, they'll call six, seven months later and say, hey, I'm looking for a job in the Boston market. Who do you know that's still at the Brigham? Or, you know, it, it's, this is, it, it feels like we're doing more than just giving loans. And You just had to drop Harvard again, didn't you? Yeah, I, <laughs> I said the Brigham, not Harvard. I know. We all know what that means. Are <laughs> using the Boston euphemism? I went to school in Boston. Like <laughs> that's the other obnoxious way that we do it yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so no, so it's been fun. So, what are some of the reasons why someone might borrow from you? Right, you mentioned the you know you know you need first and last month's rent and and you know broker because you're living in Boston or New York or you might have exams that you need to pay for. But what are some of the common reasons? And then what are some of the less intuitive reasons why people might borrow from you? Sure. So this time of year, heading into match day, that's going to be in, in two weeks, it's transition costs. But the most common reason is high interest debt consolidation. Many of us, we don't talk about this while we're in training, but we're mortgaging our future income by spending on high interest credit cards today. And then when we graduate or we're near graduation, we try to clean it up with moonlighting income, et cetera. So credit card debt is the number one thing that our borrowers are, are using our loan to consolidate. Principally because, and few people know this, there's a drag that revolving debt has in your overall credit profile. And when you're graduated, and you're trying to apply for credentialing on insurance panels and your first jobs, they do check a credit report. And bad credit appears to show an irresponsible person. So there's that factor happening right about when they're going to come out of residency. And our, in, our loan is an installment loan. So every time you make a payment with us on time every month, it actually helps your credit track record. And so you replace revolving debt with installment debt beyond just getting rid of the high utilization of your of your credit card, you're also having a more responsible credit instrument that helps with your overall credit profile. The second uh, most popular reason are home improvements. People are doing renovations to their homes, or it's usually 
investment home renovation. So it's the second property for doctors. And it's really hard sometimes to find a contractor loan. The interest rates are generally very high. And so they'll borrow personally to do that. Or they'll use our funds to collateralize a larger commercial loan. So you're by, you're borrowing $500,000 for your practice expansion. And the bank says, we need you to put up $75,000 of your own equity. And so because we don't do a hard credit pull, it's just a soft check. You're able to get you that approval, get you the funds, have a cure in your account, and you're personally responsible for that bit of money. And you're eligible now for the larger uh, commercial loan. You're squinting. Yeah, I'm squinting because I don't know how to ask you what the difference between a hard pull and a soft pull is without having to change the the rating of this podcast to uh, <laughs> to adult only. <laughs> but really, I I'm genuinely asking. What is the difference between a hard pull and a soft pull? It's completely PG. The hard pull means that they're going to do a, a credit inquiry by pulling your credit report that shows up on the history of your credit report. So someone's going to, gonna a bank is going to take a hard look at your credit profile. A soft pull means we're not actually pulling the full credit report. We're taking a peek but that minimizes the impact on your credit report because the more hard pulls you have, the more times lenders do a credit inquiry, a hard pull, it shows up on your credit report as, as you being someone who's looking for money. And so it lowers your overall credit profile. You know, I never understood why someone checking your credit report actually affects your credit report, but now it makes sense that you put it that way. It's a signal that you're illiquid and you're looking to find capital. And so the marketplace says that there's something happening there. Now, you're not penalized immediately. So there, there is some grace. If you have you know, several pulls within a short period of time, that means you're assessing or comparing rates. But if you're having pulls frequently, you know, weeks apart, it's a bad sign. It's a bad signal as someone who's looking for money. So we don't do the hard one. We do the soft pull, which means that as you're looking to access that larger line of credit or capital from another bank, they won't see our inquiry on the report and flag you as someone who's looking for capital in a way that's uh, uh, risky to them. So you're doing your best to mitigate your risk against the pool of people who are already low risk as a whole. And so you don't really need to pull all the levers that these banks do routinely because they they don't see us differently. That's exactly correct. And so I think one of the most impactful factors is just free cash flow. You know, if you have, after you pay your, your main bills, your mortgage, your uh, student loans, if you have some liquidity, we've got a ratio in mind of how much liquidity you need to have to cover the cost of our loan. And that protects us basically because there's very few bad actors that are, that are in our profession when it comes to to unsecured debt. It's just amazing to me though that you are lending people money so that they, that they can use to borrow more money. Like you're, <laughs> it's just a crazy concept. But I feel like that's the type of thing that they teach MBAs that they don't teach us in medical school. You can actually borrow money to borrow money. Yeah. And it's knowing how to play the arbitrage and interest rates and why use your own money? You know, like if the market's doing well, like it has been for the last several years until recently, why take cash out of your brokerage account that's earning 12, 13, 14% to spend 
on your next venture when you can borrow from a bank and pay three and a half percent, but for that same use case. And if you're and if if your venture cash flows quickly and in medicine and healthcare because of the way the system's set up, we, it often does. And you know that it takes ninety days for the insurance companies to begin. It, but when they but they will pay when when you bill them then you can repay that loan quickly if the terms are friendly. And so it's a fuel for growth and it allows you to get access to cheaper capital if you have more money to put down, then the cost of the larger loan gets lower. Makes sense, makes sense. Well, it sounds like you're uh, basically doing a public service for the trainees out there and manage to turn it into a pretty, into a thriving business. So, you know, thank you for, on behalf of the trainees, which I have not been for a long time now, you know, thank you for what you're doing. So where can people find Dr. Doc Lending and where can people find you? Sure. Thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure to be in this business and to talk and chat with folks like you that are doing the bidding or bidding by educating the masses and, and really being a resource to, to doctors out there that need to tap into understanding the things that are out there for them. So thanks, Brad. We're at doc2doclending.com. That's doc, the number two, the D-O-C, lending.com. And I'm Zwade, Z-W-A-D-E, at doc2doclending.com as well. And I'm happy to answer any questions that folks may have. I neglected to give you an answer to one of your earlier points. What were some of the more interesting borrowing reasons? And I had an example in mind, and, I've, and it slipped me to, to share it. We've seen a, quite a bit of energy around our female counterparts, our, our female colleagues that are in highly specialized surgical specialties that are going to be in training for a while, and they're looking to preserve their fertility. And so oocyte cryopreservation has been an increasingly popular borrowing need and IVF treatments as well. And so it's extraordinarily rewarding when you talk to a doctor who tells you they're borrowing money for IVF and seven months later, they send you a text of an ultrasound. That's really happened with us. And you really feel as though you're doing something good in these cases sometimes. And talk about brand loyalty. Holy cow. Like the fact that you were able to lend the money to make some help something like that happen. That's incredible. That's incredible. So thank you for the work that you're doing. That's doc2doclending.com. Dr. Zwade Marshall, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.